On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, guys. LD here. And TJ. With a small parental warning. The following program contains mature content, including, but not limited to, mature quotes, drug use, violence, suggestive situations, and law-breaking, gun-loving, running with scissors, and just about everything your mother ever told you not to do. Which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Okay, I just want to say at the top of the show, we still have our awesome partnership with adamandeve.com, and using our special code RRHeaven at checkout will get you 50% off one item. It will get you a special gift for her, a special gift for him. And a special gift that both of you guys will enjoy, plus six free spicy movies, and you'll get free shipping. So they just like load on all the free stuff when you use the code RRHeaven at checkout at adamandeve.com. And so I'm sure you guys are kind of surprised that we're putting out another episode, but that's because this was such a huge endeavor. I didn't think it was going to be two episodes, but here we are. So I'm going to just dive right in because we have so much to get to today. Okay, so diving back in. Following the release of Bleach in June 1989, Nirvana embarked on its first national tour, and the album became a favorite of college radio stations everywhere. Due to the increasing differences between Everman over the course of the tour, Nirvana canceled the last few dates and drove back to Washington. No one ever told Everman he was fired. He was the one that paid for the album. Right. Later, Everman actually said he had quit. So we might not ever actually know what that was. <laughs> there you go. Uh, although Sub Pop did not promote Bleach as much as other releases, it was a steady seller and its initial sales hit 40,000 copies, which I think is pretty good. Cobain was upset by the label's lack of promotion and distribution for the album. In late 1989, the band recorded the Blue EP, and that's blue like you blew it, B-L-E-W, EP with producer Steve Fisk. In late 1989, an interview with John Robb in Sounds, Kobe noted that the band's music was changing. He said, the earlier songs were really angry, but as time goes on, the songs are getting poppier and poppier, and I get happier and happier. The songs are now in conflict with our relationship and emotional things with other human beings. So there he's saying like he can, he realizes that his style is changing now. And that's, that's, is he going to become a sellout? We don't know. Well, I think any good artist evolves. Their music evolves as they grow up and as they have different experiences in their lives. So it's just one of those things. It's like, yeah, the first album would be, you know, pretty angry if that was the place that he was. And, you know, as you're going, as he's growing up and everything and writing new songs and different experiences and different things, then it's going to change that sound. Well, yeah, I mean, even that maturity can be seen by what they initially called the band. When they started out, they were Skid Row, Pin Cap Chew, Fecal Matter. And then they, and then they changed to Nirvana. So, I mean, I feel like that shows growth. Right. In April 1990, Nirvana began working on their next album with producer Butch Vig at Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Cobain and Novoselic became disenchanted with Channing's drumming, and Channing expressed frustration about not being involved in songwriting. As bootlegs of Nirvana's demo with Bay began circulating within the music industry, it started to draw attention from major labels, and Channing left the band. Bye, drummer number four. <laughs> Peace out. That July, Nirvana recorded the single Silver with Mud Honey drummer Dan Peters. Dan Clover filled in the drums on Nirvana's seven-date American West Coast tour with Sonic Youth that August. So many drummers. Uh, in September 1990, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins introduced the band to drummer... Drummer number five. Dave Grohl. <laughs> yeah. Whose Washington, D.C. band Scream had broken up. Grohl auditioned for Noah Selleck and Cobain days after arriving in Seattle. Noah Selleck said, we knew in two minutes that he was the right drummer. Grohl told Q, I remember being in the same room with them and thinking, what? That's Nirvana? Are you kidding? Because on their recording cover, they looked like psycho lumberjacks. And I was like, wait, what? That little dude? And that big motherfucker? Are you kidding me? If you don't know, like, Nova Selleck is something like 6'7 or 6'8. He is massive. So when he plays, the guitar looks like a ukulele in his hands. <laughs> He's so big. <clears throat> I know guys like that. And in October, Nirvana briefly toured England with the band L7. Okay, so we got the band together. We got, we got Kurt, we got Chris, we got Dave. Who are we missing? I honestly don't know. Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain met on January 12th, 1990 in Portland's... Okay, I'm going to completely... Yeah, but she wasn't in the band. No, but she's a major part of his story. Oh, yeah. So I thought you meant, like, band-wise, who are we missing? I'm like, I don't know. Nobody? (laughs) No, just important in Kurt's life. Got it. Okay, so they met in Portland's... Okay, I'm going to try to say this, but I'm probably going to get yelled at. Satyricon nightclub, where they both still led ardent underground rock bands. Love made advances, but Cobain was evasive. Early in their interactions, Kurt broke off dates and ignored Love's advances because he was unsure if he wanted a relationship. Cobain noted that I was determined to be a bachelor for a few more months, but I knew that I liked Courtney so much right away that I had a really hard time and I struggled to stay away from her for so many months. Love first saw Cobain perform in 1989 at a show in Portland, Oregon. They talked briefly after the show and Love developed a crush on him. Cobain was already aware of Love through her role in the 1987 film Straight to Hell. I did not know what this movie was and I meant to look it up, but I did not because this was so heavy already. So, uh, but she is, she's a great actress in The People vs. Larry Flint. She was super convincing as a heroin addict. So... Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) You couldn't tell the sarcasm dripping from my voice? I had to make sure (laughs) that everybody else understood. According to True, the pair were formally introduced at at an L7 and Butthole Surfers concert in Los Angeles in May 1991. (laughs) The Butthole Surfers. I love the names of the 90s. I really do. They really are great. Uh, In the weeks that followed, after learning from Grohl that Cobain had shared a mutual interest in her, love began to pursue him. In late 1991, the two were often together and bonded through drug use. Um, And I I thought I left this in my notes, but apparently I didn't. They had a run-in at a bar, Cobain and Love, which they ended up getting into a wrestling match. Like a legit wrestling match. With each other or other people? Yes, with each other. Like, okay. I think I remember that. Like, it's always, it's, it's, I don't ever, I've never seen it written as like they were in a fist fight. It was just wrestling. So I don't think it was too vicious, but I mean, it's still kind of ridiculous. Right. And this is, I pulled this from an article and I forgot to notate it in my notes, but it will be in the show notes. Uh, Courtney and Kirk are the 90s, a much more talented version of Sid and Nancy, a record executive once noted. Courtney's going to be famous, and Kurt already is, but unless something happens, they're going to be self-destructive. I know they're both going to be big stars, I just don't want to be a part of it. That was a quote taken straight from the infamous 1992 Vanity Fair story on Courtney Love, written by Lynn Hirschberg, who would go on to depict the whole front woman as an obnoxious, rabble-rousing, image-obsessed opportunist who reveled in being the newly anointed Mrs. Cobain. It was just a year before the bombshell article that Love and Cobain crossed paths. And then this is what I was saying. There are varying reports that they met briefly in 89 and 90, but were officially reacquainted in 91. 
when they got into a wrestling match with her in a bar. Nirvana at its peak, and Cobain was confused and depressed with the meteoric fame that came with his music. When Love re-entered his sphere, she allegedly pursued him with dogged determination and, according to the numerous sources, was the one who introduced him to heroin. Mirroring Cobain's life, their courtship was intense and brief. After four months of dating, Love was already pregnant with their daughter, and they decided to wed in Honolulu, Hawaii, on February 24, 1992. The bride wore a dress previously owned by actress Frances Farmer, while Cobain wore green flannel pajamas because he was too lazy to put on a tux. Perfect. Eight people were in attendance of the ceremony, including Grohl. After the wedding, Cobain went into a funk. Despite Nirvana's soaring popularity, the frontman had no desire to tour and further retreated into himself. He went on a binge, confessed love to Vanity Fair in 92. We did a lot of drugs. We got a lot of pills. And then we went down to Alphabet City and Kurt wore a hat. I wore a hat. And we chopped up some dope. We got high. Went to SNL. After that, I did heroin for a couple months. I don't think I kept this in my notes, but... Sorry, people that read the article did the math from when they got married, her already being pregnant, and then the SNL, which I, I, I do talk about, uh, the SNL appearance, and they realized that she had been doing heroin while pregnant with Francis. It doesn't really surprise me, though. No, but... It, it was... I mean, it's sad, but it doesn't really surprise me. Yeah, and I think that made the media turn their eye toward Courtney as kind of an unfit mother. And at one point, they did get the custody of their daughter taken away from them. So... And they're basing it on this article, which could be conjecture. They could have, you know... But that seems to be the consensus is, yes, she was pregnant, and yes, she was doing heroin. But she did try to clean up for Francis. Um, well, that's good. In 2015... Uh, Love, who at the time was promoting Montage of Heck, a biopic of Cobain, would later add that he wanted to stay in the apartment and do heroin and paint and play his guitar. That's all he wanted to do. But interlaced among the drug-fueled binges were moments of laughter and sincere affection. In never-before-seen footage from Montage of Heck, Cobain is seen joking with Love in the bathroom, while another moment captures Love teasingly climbing on Cobain's back while singing a tune. And that's one of the, the documentaries we watched. There's three main documentaries. There's Kurt and Courtney. There's Soaked in Bleach. And then there's Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck. And Montage of Heck is really cool because you get to see a lot of the footage from when he was a child. And they took recordings and then did animation, on, like rotoscoping animation, on top of his recordings. So it's it's a really cool documentary. It's incredibly long. It's, a, I think, a little bit over two hours. But it's worth it. If you're an actual Nirvana Jesus. fan, I suggest watching it. The couple also made intermittent attempts to get clean. In March 1992, they enrolled in separate detox programs, but within days they would check out and drive right back into their addictions. In Vanity Fair, friends told the publication later that Love did heroin while pregnant. That's what I was talking about. The, the couple's daughter, Frances Bean, was born on August 18th, 1992. And here's something cute. When they did a sonogram, uh, not only is that included as the artwork for Nirvana's single Lithium, but they swore that on the sonogram, the baby was throwing up the devil horns, like the rock-on <laughs> symbol. <laughs> nice. nice. By the time their daughter, Frances Bean, was born in August, Cobain had briefly considered quitting the band so he could focus on fatherhood. But he didn't. And despite his good intentions, he couldn't quit his drug habit either. In additional footage revealed in the film, Cobain's descent into self-destruction becomes more and more evident. In one scene, he suddenly walks out of Frances' first birthday party. In another, he's nodding off while she's getting her first haircut. Kurt, you don't want your daughter to see you behaving like this on drugs. Love screams off camera. I'm not on drugs, Cobain claims. I'm tired. Despite their love for their daughter, the couple's marriage was also unraveling, exacerbated by their drug use. Love would later admit that the reason why Cobain attempted suicide in Rome, and that's that's going to come up in the, the next part, the, the, Romans, the Rome suicide attempt, mm -hmm. uh, in early March 1994 was because she was actually considering having an affair. He must have been psychic or something, she told TV Guide. I almost did one time and he knew it. I have no idea how he knew it. The plan didn't go anywhere. Nothing happened. But the response to it was that he took 67 Ruhypnols and ended up in a coma because I thought about cheating on him. Cobain's problems weren't just with love. He was never able to quell the inner demons that stemmed from his lonely youth, nor could he embrace his newfound celebrity, which he thought delegitimized his music. 
his world was caving in on him and he could not take the pressure. I mean, could you imagine, like, as a kid, you're so isolated and you feel left behind and, you know, it was it was troubling to him. And then he finds himself suddenly, like, thrust into the spotlight and people buying his albums and he's going on tour and then all of a sudden he's got a wife, he's got a baby, and he's got a drug habit. Like, I would feel a lot of pressure with that too. I mean, people that live completely normal, anonymous lives that have a child introduced into the mix can feel stressed. So imagine everything weighing on him at this point. Right. He is considered to be the rock star who didn't want fame, the weak, pathetic guy who was always taken over by controlling females and yada, yada, yada. Love wrote to Loudwire in 2015. It's kind of effed up. He's a hard act to follow. I love him and I always will. So at this point, Kurt is now disenchanted with Sub Pop and with the Smart Studio Sessions that were generating interest, Nirvana decided to look for a deal with a major recording label since no indie label could buy the group out of its contract. Cobain and Novoselic consulted Soundgarden and Allison Chains, which is the most 90s people that you can consult for anything. He consulted their manager, Susan Silver, for advice. They met Silver in Los Angeles and she introduced them to agent Don Mueller and music business attorney Alan Mintz, who specialized in finding deals for new bands. Mint started sending out Nirvana's demo tape to major labels looking for deals. Following repeated recommendations by Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon, Nirvana signed to DG, so hard, DGC Records in 1990. When Nirvana was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014, Novoselic thanked Silver during his speech for introducing them to the music industry properly. I think that's kind of a slap for smart studios and sub pop. Right. Because, I mean, they did, like, Sub Pop did give them that chance. <sighs> in August 1991, Nirvana opened up for Sonic Youth on a European festival tour, which included a landmark performance at the Reading Festival. This tour is actually documented in the film The Year Punk Broke. After signing, the band recorded their first major label album, Nevermind. One of the best. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in. I don't know how I don't know how good that got came up on the microphone. I just kind of did it in the background. <laughs> I think it came out fine. I'm leaving it in. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I wasn't like up on the mic, so I don't know how much it came through, but just in the background it'll work. It'll work totally fine. Uh the group was offered a number of producers, but they actually held out for Vig, the guy who did Bleach, I believe. Rather than record at Ving's Madison studio, as they had in 1990, the production shifted to Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, not too far from where I'm sitting right now. For two months, the band worked through a variety of songs, some such as In Bloom and Breed had been in Nirvana's repertoire for years, while others, including On a Plane and Stay Away, lacked finished lyrics until midway through the recording process. So they kind of had that half album. What was the saying that you had? That artists have a lifetime to write their first album and then six months to write their second one. It wasn't me. It wasn't we talked about that in some episode. They're all bleeding together now. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> um, after the recording sessions were completed, Big and the band set out to mix the album. However, the recording sessions had run behind schedule and the resulting mi- mixes were deemed unsatisfactory. Slayer mixer Andy Wallace was brought in to create the final mix. After the album's release, members of Nirvana expressed dissatisfaction with the polished sound the mixer had given Nevermind. And on September 24th, 1991, one of the best albums of all time, in my opinion, Nevermind, was released. The music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit... Oh, I love the sound. It's so oh, It's like the sounds of my childhood. Uh, the, the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit premiered on MTV's alternative music show, 120 Minutes, on Sunday, September 29th. My birthday. I was 11. It was 1991. Uh, Cobain watched himself in a hotel room at the Roger Smith Hotel in New York City and called his mother to tell her, there's me. <laughs> so literally, when he, the first <laughs> nice. time he ever saw himself on TV, he called his mom, which is something I feel like both of us would do. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't have to call my mom. She'd already be tuned in like two hours ahead of time. <laughs> they kind of put out a call to like Nirvana fans to help them make the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit. So if you know, do you know the movie Shaun of the Dead? 
Yes. Okay, you know all of the zombies? Yes. Uh, they're not paid. They were literally fans of the TV show Spaced, which starred Nick Frost and uh, Simon Pegg. And basically, they put out a call to their fans and were like, hey, you want to come be in the zombie movie and meet us? And a ton of people showed up. And I think that was the same thing that happened with Smells Like Teen Spirit. That's cool, though. Yeah. And just for you, TJ, I have a fun fact. Woohoo! After a night of drinking, Kurt Cobain and his then-roommate, Dave Grohl, were joined by Bikini Kill songwriter-vocalist Kathleen Hanna and drummer Toby Vale in their humble pre-fame abode. <laughs> the party continued, and eventually Hannah spray-painted Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on Cobain's wall, a reference to the deodorant Vale, Cobain's girlfriend at the time, used to smell pleasant without any white residue. <laughs> And the, as the rest of the legend goes on, Cobain loved the phrasing and wrote the song without knowing of Teen Spirit's deodorant existence until after it was recorded. Did you used to use Teen Spirit? I didn't use it, but I knew of it. I don't even know if they make it anymore, do they? I have no clue. Um, but I always thought it was funny, the the song. I thought it was funny because I knew of the, of the deodorant. Yeah. Well, apparently he didn't even know of the deodorant. That doesn't make me... That doesn't shock me that he didn't know about deodorant. Something about that doesn't shock me. Well, deodorant, but like the brand of deodorant, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I have another fun fact for you. On Friday the 13th, 1991, Geffen threw the band a record release party with the invitation that read, Never mind Triskaidekaphobia, here's Nirvana. Triskaidekaphobia, here's Nirvana. Triskaidekaphobia. Triskaidekaphobia. Because <laughs> that rolls off the tongue. Trixodexophobia. Trixodexophobia. Dex. Dex. Triskodexophobia. Triscuits. Here's Nirvana. <laughs> Cobain started a full fledged food fight when he threw ranch dressing at Nova Selic, and a bouncer responded by grabbing the two and Grohl and throwing them out. The band stood in alley behind the club. Of their own party? They were thrown out of their own party, their own record release nice. party for starting a food fight. Nice. Um, the band stood in the alley behind the club and talked to their friends through the window before moving to a friend's place where Kurt Cobain shot a fire extinguisher and the place had to be evacuated. At the next venue, this is venue three, Cobain completed the destruction trifecta by tossing a gold record plaque by the group Nelson into a microwave after complain after proclaiming it an affront to humankind. Wow. <laughs> Just wow. So, let's recap his night. Invited to his own re his own record release party. Starts a food fight, gets kicked out, hangs out in an alley, goes to another place, shoots off a fire extinguisher that has to be evacuated. Then he goes to another party in which he basically blows up a microwave using Nelson's gold record. <laughs> Very cool, man. Real cool. Rock and roll lifestyle, right? I guess. Not <sighs> my rock and roll lifestyle. Uh, initially. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> may, maybe you are. Maybe you should like set a fire in someone's kitchen or something. Done. I'll be over at five. Oh, don't. I have to record a YouTube video. Set your neighbor's kitchen on fire. Nah. Nah. They wouldn't understand. They don't get me. Initially, DGC Records was hoping to sell 250,000 copies of Nevermind, the same that they had achieved with Sonic Youth's Goo. However, the first single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, quickly gained momentum, boosted by major airplay of the music video on MTV. As it toured Europe during late 1991, the band found that its shows were dangerously oversold, that television crews were becoming constant, on stage, and that Smells Like Teen Spirit was almost an omnipresence on the radio and on MTV. By Christmas 91, Nevermind was selling 400,000 copies in a week in the U.S., so they drastically oversold what they were, they were shooting for. In January of 92, their album displaced Michael Jackson's Dangerous on the Billboard 100 charts, and that was like over multiple countries. Like it wasn't just in the U.S. that they ki he kicked off Michael Jack that they kicked off Michael Jackson. The month that never mind. It's crazy. It, it is not because think about like the night, like 90, I'd say like 86 to like 95, Michael Jackson dominated. Like you had, right. you had Thriller that came out as still like, like the number one music video in the world. And all of a sudden, 
these kids from Seattle come in and like knock him off the throne. I mean, that is that's almost impossible to think that the month that Nevermind reached number one, Billboard proclaimed that Nirvana is the rare band that has everything critical, uh, critical acclaim, industry respect, pop radio appeal and a rock solid college alternative base. The album eventually sold over 7 million copies in the U.S. and over 30 million worldwide. Oh, my God. On October 12, 1991, it was certified gold. And I think it's it's done better than that now. I think it's it might be platinum now. It wouldn't surprise me. Given time, yeah. I mean, uh, November 1991, the band started a six-week European tour known as Nirvana Mania, swept the United States. MTV airs smelled like teen spirit video constantly i mean like i know growing up you could not escape that music video i can almost close my eyes and see the entire video in my head oh yeah the song is hailed as the anthem for a generation um and it's funny because if you if you actually listen to smells like teen spirit you can understand like eight words he's saying (laughs) i was gonna say i couldn't understand a single thing he was saying and half the reason well, and half the reason I know the chorus at this point was because they used it in part of Moulin Rouge. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Turn the lights out. It's less dangerous. Here we are now. Entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious. Yeah, but that's the only, I only understood the chorus yeah. of that whole song. No clue what he's <laughs> saying in the verses. <laughs> but I finally, like, between Moulin Rouge, like, I think before Moulin Rouge, I kind of knew the chorus at least. But, like, then, I don't know. I just, I, <laughs> like I say, could never understand any of the lyrics in the verses. But the chorus, I slowly figured out over time. Yeah. But it took a while. It wasn't like the first time I heard it, I figured it out. Like, no. It took many years. But it's an anthem for a generation. I guess because... It was loud and you couldn't understand it. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea what it means either, but. <laughs> well, what does crystal blue persuasion yeah. mean? <laughs> I mean. No clue. Art doesn't have to have a meaning to everyone. <laughs> no. January 11th, 1992, Nirvana went from being like this Seattle-based baby band that were just kind of giving Michael Jackson a run from his money and they were thrust into the mainstream with their SNL debut. They were the very first grunge band to be featured on a nationally syndicated television program. I stayed up past my bedtime to watch this one. Uh, (laughs) Mainstream America got a big, bold first impression of frontman Kurt Cobain with his bright red, like, Kool-Aid strawberry hair and a full of... Oh, I remember his, like, Kool-Aid dyed hair. Yeah. It was, like, pink in some places and, like, bright red in the others. It was a thing from the 90s, kids. Yep. A flipper t-shirt and an amplified rendition of their smash hit Smells Like Teen Spirit. For their second and final, so their first song was Smells Like Teen Spirit. For their second and final song for their SNL debut, Nirvana blazed through a live rendition of Territorial Pissing. And it concluded with their traditional smashing of all of their gears to bits. Knowing this ahead of time, the SNL producers swapped out their amps with less expensive models. And it was was probably a good thing. Smart. Yeah. Well, like if you, I can't, I can't remember if it's fear or rage, but John Belushi talked uh, Lorne Michaels into bringing this punk band on, and this was like in the early years of SNL, and basically they destroyed the the entire stage. People were like jumping on the stage. You can find clips of it. I think there's like a Watch Mojo list online on YouTube that basically lists all of the top 10 worst musical guests on SNL. And they're the first ones that they mention. Nice. But I mean, Lauren is not a dumb man. And so it was a good thing that they switched it out because Cobain just took his guitar and just put it through the amp, <laughs> like took the head of his guitar and just slammed it into the amp. Uh, to conclude their explosive first visit to SNL, the members made out with each other during the show's weekly curtain call, as the band noted to piss off the rednecks and homophobes. All right, then. Nirvana would return to SNL 22 months later, one last time when they would perform Heart Shaped Box and Rape Me. And as note, 
they did not go to the SNL cast party. Okay. So going to the SNL cast party is like a really big deal. Like you go to SNL and it is one of the most like star studded events that you can go to. Like if you get to, if you actually get into an SNL party, even when someone isn't hosting, they could be at the party. And so like you might, right. so like John Mayer could be the musical guest and the host can be Alec Baldwin, but you'll see like Jamie Foxx there, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, you know, it, it's doesn't matter. It's a huge deal. So not going to the SNL party was like the most grunge thing that they could do because they're like, I'm not going to I'm not going to go to this party. So they blew it off and uh, Kirk did heroin. Solid choice. Solid choice. But again, just for you, TJ, I have a fun fact. Don't pretend it's just for me. <laughs> fun facts are for everybody. Fun facts are for everyone. To the joy of Cobain, Nova Selleck, and Grohl, they actually got a phone call in the green room while they were at SNL from Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> cool. Um, this is a quote. That was the craziest weekend because we get there and the first time you see the SNL studios, it's really tiny. It is really tiny. Grohl called in 2011. You imagine it being this big thing, and honestly, it's tiny. It's so small, and the energy is crazy, and the people are running around, and it goes by so quickly. And one of the cast members comes up and says, Hey, I'm friends with Weird Al Yankovic, and he wants to talk to you about doing one of your songs. And so I think we talked to him in the dressing room of <laughs> SNL. He, he, he called the phone, and basically, you know that you've arrived when Weird Al calls. And it was pretty huge, and he, he did a good job. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years' experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. What I want to do right now is I'm going to play about 35 seconds of Smells Like Teen Spirit, and then I'm going to let you hear some of Weird Al's version. Okay, so that was Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit. Now I'm going to play you Weird Al Yankovic's version, Smells Like Nirvana.
<laughs> that smells like Nirvana. I love Weird Al so much. And he doesn't generally reference the band in the song, like in the name of the song or in the lyrics and stuff, does he? Uh, yeah, no, like normally he'll do something like, you know, party in the USA becomes party in the CIA and gangster paradise becomes Amish paradise. So it, it's not very often, but I think he does do it like maybe once or twice in his entire repertoire. But if you have an opportunity to go see Weird Al in concert, do it because it is so much fun from beginning to end. He does like costume changes and there are videos that he shows when he's doing his costume changes and he brings out like stormtroopers and Darth Vader on it's just it's so much fun from beginning to end and I'm really sad because normally that's mine and my husband's anniversary gift to each other we'll go see Weird Al because normally he's at the Orange County Fair when our anniversary rolls around on or around but he didn't do it last year so we're kind of bummed oh yeah so, hopping back into the story, citing exhaustion, Nirvana decided not to undertake another American tour in support of Nevermind, instead opting to only make a handful of performances later in the year. In March 90, uh, 1992, Kurt sought to reorganize the group's songwriting royalties to, to this point, had been split equally to better represent that he wrote the majority of the music. So, you can imagine, like, that's kind of the opposite of what Queen did. Where basically right. Freddie got all the credit and then he came back in, well, at least according to Bohemian Rhapsody, came back in and was like, okay, it all belongs to Queen now. So they kind of did like the the switch of that. But Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic did not object. But when Cobain wanted the agreement to be retroactive to the release of Nevermind, the disagreement between the two sides came close to breaking up the band. After a week of tension, Cobain received a retroactive share of 75% of the royalties. Uh, but bad feelings about the situation remain within the group afterward. I could understand that. <laughs> well, yeah, because we have to pay you back now. Like, yeah, and not just that, but like you're like you've had one major hit record. Like, do you want to implode based on royalties? Right. No joke. In April 1992, Nirvana appears on the cover of Rolling Stone. That too was on their timeline. We've we've said some stuff about. Rolling Stone, how it's kind of fallen off, especially after they put one of the Boston Bombers on the cover. They preemptively said that Tom Petty was dead and their, his daughter stepped out. So, I mean, I think they've made some missteps since this. But in 1992, it was a big deal to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. Oh, yeah. Amid the rumors that the band was disbanding due to Cobain's health, Nirvana headlined the closing night of England's 1992 Reading Festival. Cobain personally programmed the performance lineup. Nirvana performed at Reading is often regarded by the press as one of the most memorable of the group's careers. A few days later, Nirvana performed at the MTV Music Awards, despite the network's refusal to let the band play their new song, Rape Me. Cobain, was, uh, Cobain strummed the first few bars of the song before breaking into lithium. Uh, that night, the band received awards for the Best Alternative Video and the Best New Artist categories. And I think this is the same performance where Chris Novoselic actually threw his guitar up in the air and he misjudged where it was going to land and it just slammed him in the face and gave him a concussion <laughs> and you can see I mean I shouldn't laugh at that but at the same time like that's a big whoops yeah he just like tosses it you can you can see it online he tosses it in the air and it just comes down like right on his head and then he crawls off while the rest of the band destroy the set. So, I mean, it was a great performance. I actually remember watching it. But, uh, yeah, I don't think he did that anymore after that. I'm going to guess probably not. <laughs> DGC had hoped to have a new Nirvana album ready by late 1992 holiday season. Instead, it released a compilation album, Incesticide, in December of 92. A joint venture between DGC and Sub Pop. Incesticide collected various rare Nirvana recordings, and it was intended to provide the material for a better price than a, a bootleg would. So, like, they tried to create their own bootleg, basically. I see. As Nirvana had been out for 15 months and had yielded four singles in bloom by that point, Geffen and DGC opted not to heavily promote Incesticide, which was certified gold by the Record Industry Association of America the following February. So they're just, like, failing up. Right. That's what I'm getting from this. It's just like, we're not going to promote this. Gold record. <laughs> in 
In February 1993, Nirvana released Puss and Oh the Guilt, a split single with the Jesus Lizard on an independent label, Touch and Go. Meanwhile, the group chose Steve Albini, who had a reputation as a principled and opinionated individual in the American indie music scene, to record its third album. There was speculation that the band chose Albini to record the album due to the underground credentials, and Cobain insisted that his sound was simple, the one that he always wanted Nirvana to have, a natural recording without layers of studio trickery. Nirvana traveled to Pachyderm Studios in Canyon Falls, Minnesota in that February to record the album. The sessions with Albini were productive and quick, and the album was recorded and mixed within two weeks for $25,000. So that was a big jump from the $606 that they spent on their first album. Yeah, but now you got studio backing and travel and... Yeah. A little different than doing... in. A little independent deal with no mixing and mastering, you know. Also, you're in Minnesota in February. It's so cold. Yeah. I'm I'm a cold wuss. Like this thing like let's let's plan to go to Minnesota in February. It'll be great. I mean, it can be. God, it's so cold. Wuss. Yep. I will freely admit that I'm a giant wuss when it comes to weather. Several weeks after the completion of the recording sessions. Stories ran in the Chicago Tribune and Newsweek that quoted sources claiming that DGC was considering the album unreleasable. As a result, fans began to believe that the band's creative vision might be compromised by their label. While the stories about DGC shelving the album were untrue, the band actually was unhappy with certain aspects of the mixes. They thought that the bass levels were too low and Cobain felt that Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies did not sound Perfect. Longtime REM producer Scott Lint was called in to remix those two songs, with Cobain adding additional instrumentations and backing vocals. And through all this, when I found this information, I thought it was really cool. So I wanted to add this because I didn't realize this aspect of the band. And so I, I, I had to throw this in. On April 9th, 1993, Nirvana plays a concert at San, Franci- uh, at San Francisco's Cal Palace to raise awareness and generate aid for rape survivors in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Nirvana at the time was receiving an average of one request per day to play benefits, but it wasn't until bassist Chris Novoselic traveled through the war-torn Bosnia in January that the band agreed to play one and even help out the organization of it. Novoselic's parents were born in Croatia, was especially horrified to learn about the tens of thousands of women who have been raped by Serbian soldiers. Reportedly, many of the women are detained in camps and forced to bear their rapist children as a form of torture. In That's so messed up. Yep. In the Croatian capital, he met volunteers of the I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this name up and I'm sorry, Tretskvia women's group who offered care to, to women refugees of all backgrounds. DGC said that sixty thousand dollars had been raised for the women's group, potential funding for mobile clinics and a multi purpose center. L seven, the breeders and the disposable heroes of hypocrisy were also on the bill. So they raised $60,000 for this one group, and I think that was awesome. That's great. So let's move on to In Utero. Uh, In Utero uh, debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart in September of 1993. Times' Christopher John Fairley wrote in his review of the album, Despite the fears of some alternative music fans, Nirvana has not gone mainstream through its potent new album, may once again force the mainstream to go to Nirvana. In Utero went on to sell over 5 million copies in the United States. That October, Nirvana embarked on its first tour of the United States in two years with the support from the half-Japanese and the Breeders. Do you remember the Breeders? Vaguely. They did the song Cannonball. I was like, I know you know it if you've heard the song. Yeah. For the tour, the band added Pat Smear of the punk band Germs as a second guitarist. I think that's the first time in a while they've been a quartet instead of a trio and this if I didn't keep this part in people would probably tear my hair out if I didn't keep this in I would probably tear my own hair out because it's one of those like watershed moments in musical history that I was so happy that I got to watch unfold so in November of that year they did their recorded programming for MTV unplugged oh yeah which is one of the most amazing unplugs ever. It's th- oh, it's iconic. Yeah, it's. I think you, I think like even just looking for Nirvana p- performances, that is at the top. And as far as like unplugged goes, it's Nirvana, and a close second is the Eric Clapton. 
And I wish, yeah. I really wish they would bring back Unplugged. I really wish they would because it's such, it was so interesting and but unique. It's not a reality TV show. I know. And it's about music instead of teen mothers or <laughs> the like. TJ like, throwing shade on current MTV trends. <laughs> uh, yeah. Current MTV sucks. Oh, yeah. Bring back my MTV. Now, if you if you really want to watch music videos during Christmas time, my brother always leaves it on like VH1 classics. And they actually do show, they actually do show nothing but music videos. So if you really are itching to watch classic music videos from like the 80s and the 90s, watch VH1 Classic because it is awesome. Like that's our Christmas tradition. Just, just any content related to music on a channel on several channels called music television would be nice i'm make, just saying make I'm just an putting mtv4 it out there. and then just I'm just putting it, it out there yeah no i fully agree if i i think it, they're still owned by viacom but if i was running viacom i would i would create mtv4 and let it just be nothing but music videos start at the beginning with the bogles and work all the way up to billy eilish just music videos all the time well, again, you would think there'd be at least some music content on a on a channel called music television. You would think, but they don't. <laughs> they lost sight. Augmented by Schmier and cellist Lori Goldson, the band broke convention for the show by choosing not to play their most recognizable songs. Instead, they performed several covers and invited Chris and Kirk Kirkwood of the Meat Puppets to join them for renditions of three Meat Puppet songs. In an article from November 1st, 2019, Rolling Stone writer David Brown gave kind of his personal in-person account of what he got to see because he actually went to the taping of the MTV Unplugged. Uh, 25 years ago today, which was, this is an article from 2019, so this was a, uh, less than a year ago, MTV Unplugged in New York arrived on CD, cassettes, and VHS tapes. By then, Kurt Cobain had been dead for nearly seven months. And an appearance of this largely acoustic performance taped nearly a year before took on a feel of a memorial service. The mood wasn't reflected simply in the look of the stage with its flowers and candles. It really evoked a funeral scenario Cobain was aiming for, but also in the toned-down performances of All Apologies, Come As You Are, and versions of the songs by the Meat Puppets and the Vaselines, David Bowie and Lead Belly. And I'm going to play you right now what I think is one of the best performances from that night, which is where he did The Man Who Sold the World. We passed upon the stairs still love that song today and I, it, oh, yeah. it's rare that i'm like oh yeah he's so much better than david bowie that never that never happens <laughs> that's the one well that was the song i was singing earlier when you said when we got to nevermind i was doing that guitar oh, lick that's just what because you were i remember <laughs> yeah because i remember that performance and i still like honestly sometimes i attribute it back to nirvana because it was just such a great cover. Well, you remember when we did Johnny Cash, how you were talking about Hurt? Right. And how it's no longer a Nine Inch Nail song. It belongs to Johnny Cash. Right. I think that's kind of what happened with The Man Who Sold the World. I kind of think so, too. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, in those pre-social media days, those of us who were lucky enough to score tickets to the taping thought we knew what we were going to expect when we were escorted into the Sony studio just north of Times Square. I'm continuing with the article, by the way. Sorry, I didn't notate that at the top, but here right. we are. We knew that Cobain didn't seem all that happy with being a rock star, and Nirvana was essentially acquiesced to the industry dictates by taping one of these shows. Basically like, you do what you have to do to stay where you are. I don't think it was entirely like selling out, but it was, you just have to no. make these studio heads happy. You have to do what they want. It's an obligation of your contract. Like, you have to... You have to put out, just like you have to put out music, you need to do things like this to help support it and keep your name relevant. Yeah. I just, I like, uh, looking back on it, I'm not sure that Nirvana was really concerned with staying relevant or staying in the public eye. By all accounts. Not really. They did it all by accident. <laughs> yeah. And by all accounts, they hated it. Like, they hated the fame that came with this. They hated being recognizable. Um, I think it was Montage of Heck or uh, behind the music that basically showed newspaper articles or like covers of magazines. And it was just a montage of magazines. It was just like Nirvana is famous and they hate it. Nirvana hates every moment of their fame. And it's it just a constant thing. So I think this unplugged was just something that they had to do to make those studio heads happy so they could keep making music. Right. Oh, yeah, my, my, my. By the fall of 1993, Unplugged wasn't simply one of MTV's biggest franchise, but it was now practically part of every act's marketing plan. Paul McCartney, Eric Clapton, LL Cool J, Rod Stewart, Neil Young, and even one of your favorites, Aerosmith, among many, had already taped Unplugged episodes to promote new records. So yep. most of us also had assumed that Unamplified Nirvana would include songs from In Utero, which had dropped a little bit more than a month before. But they actually opted for deep cuts and covers, like we just played. Thanks to the accounts that have emerged since the original taping, we now know that what was taking place in the days leading up to the taping. Since Nirvana had never performed without full-on electricity, the rehearsals were tense. I can imagine that. MTV brass weren't thrilled when the promised guests turned out to be the Meat Puppets, and not to say anyone from Pearl Jam. So they actually wanted him to bring somebody like Eddie Vedder on instead of the meat puppets. Aw, poor meat puppets. I know. Cobain was going through withdrawal that morning. So you've got the tension between the MTV brasses. You have having to move from basically all electric to acoustic. You have the disappointment that Pearl Jam isn't going to show up. And he's going through withdrawal. Like, this cannot be easy. <laughs> There were actually even disputes between the band and the network over their stage set. God, just let them play. Yeah. You want them on the show, just let them play what they're going to play. The end. In attendance were celebrities like Kate Moss, rock stars like the member of Sonic Youth, which I think that's because they had been, they had been on tour with Sonic Youth. They had, you know, they had... So it would be expected that they'd be there. Yeah. Media and industry types. The prevailing feeling that was in the air was that of mystery. Most of those previous cases, you pretty well knew what songs that you'd hear before the show aired, but how would any of Cobain's songs come across in that format? But what would Nirvana's Unplugged be? No one had taped rehearsal footage on their cell phone and leaked it. Hardly anyone had even had a mobile phone back in those days. And of course, Cobain was sporting that Fred Rogers sweater and playing an acoustic guitar with a hidden amplification. And the set opened with About a Girl, which he dryly introduced as a song from the album Bleach that most people didn't know. And he is so <laughs> blasé like, during his performance. I remember at one point, he's just like, here's this song. I figure I can screw it up. So here we go. And then he just goes into the song like, oh, please, I... I'm pretty sure you can see the entire performance on YouTube. It's completely worth it. Take the time to go watch it because if you listen to, if you just listen to the Nirvana albums, I feel like you're missing a part of of the Nirvana experience. Yeah, you you need that other piece because it's a completely different side. And I think really that was when I fell in love with Kurt. You know, but he was already dead. Womp. Yeah, and see my brother. My brother loved Nirvana, and that's how I got into Nirvana. So you can imagine me being a 13-year-old, 11-year, like a, between 11 and 13-year-old, singing the song Rape Me in front of my extremely Christian Southern parents did not go over well. No. <laughs> According to MTV executive Alex Coletti, Nirvana's Unplugged was the only one of three episodes played straight through with no retakes. 
The other two being Live. Remember Live? Lightning crashes. Oh, yeah. Can't do the voice, but that's the song, Lightning Crashes. And then Crosby, Steals, and Nash were the only other two that were played straight through with no retakes. I mean, like, even in today's modern... um, modern concerts or anytime they record like Broadway shows, they'll actually do it two or three times. I mean, even the um, Victoria's Secret runway show is run through twice just in case anybody like slips or falls or loses something on the the runway. So they have as clean a version as possible. So what you're seeing is not what happened on stage as it actually unfolded. But Nirvana's Unplugged was one of those rare events. So that was cool. Cool, cool. Yeah. In that moment, Cobain's mastery was in full view, along with the possible future for his career, with or without Nirvana. Any doubts that he had a limited musical future vanished instantly. There was, of course, no encore, and I remember most of us walking out of the studio feeling thrilled yet drained. The entire performance made you feel as if if Cobain would have perhaps survived, that maybe this troubled but charismatic musician was stronger than the rumors that he had led to believe that he would make it after all. But we remember what happened about five months later. This quiet seemed to be his salvation, but it wasn't. January 7th, 1994, Nirvana plays the Seattle Arena. This will be the band's last U.S. show. In early 1994, Nirvana embarked on a European tour. Nirvana's final concert took place in Munich, Germany on March the 1st. This was their last ever TV appearance on the Italian TV show Tunnel on February 23rd, and it aired on the 27th of February during which they performed Serve the Servants and Dumb. In Rome on the morning of March 4th, Cobain's wife found Cobain unconscious in their hotel room, and he was rushed to the hospital. Cobain had reacted to a combination of prescription rohypnol and alcohol, and the rest of that tour was canceled. And that is where we will pick up next time, because I have so much about that. Downer. Yeah, that quote-unquote... Roman suicide attempt, Um, a little bit more about the unplugged, which has to do with what happened in Rome and going back to like his stomach issues and things like that. So the next episode is going to be heady, but it's going to be hopefully something really good. I've worked on it forever. (laughs) And, and so I've, I've, I've lived with Kurt Cobain for like two months now and I really suggest that you guys go watch, go watch Soaked in Bleach, watch Kurt and Courtney, watch uh, the montage of Heck. I think all of those are on Prime right now. I think you can catch some of them on YouTube, and I think one of them is on Netflix. But I do suggest, as a supplement to this particular podcast, go check those out because what I don't have the time for in the next episode is to go into all of the details of Kurt's suicide because there are so many different facets to it that I'm only going to try to give one or two because if I dive into this we go full tinfoil and it will be a nightmare for TJ. <laughs> yes, please no. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. Uh, we hope to see you guys on the next episode. Make sure that you, uh, you know, if you're stuck in quarantine and need fun things to do, you can uh, use our code RRHeaven on adamandeve.com and get uh, 50% off one item and then 10 free gifts. Also check out the other podcasts on the Pantheon Network. That's The Muses. Uh, that's The Rock and Roll Archaeology. Uh, there the is The show that started it all. Yeah, check out those i know that we're all stuck inside so why don't you guys check those out it's a lot of fun um and that's it for today our social stuff is that uh if you guys would like to donate to our patreon you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven you can find us on twitter at rock and roll lt our facebook is rock and roll heaven pod instagram is rock and roll heaven lt still not saying the website and you can email us at rock and roll heaven lt at gmail.com if i said that too fast it will be in the show notes Uh, Again, thank you guys for checking us out. We will see you next time. Keep rocking in the free world. TJ. Yeah. Take us out. Okay, bye. Bye.
Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money... Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at IntoHistory.com.